Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We are taping today on Thursday, December 5th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hello, everybody. And my colleague, Mary Agnes Carey of Kaiser Health News. Thanks for having me. Later in this episode, we will have our Bill of the Month interview. This month, KHN's Marky and Horrorluck tells us the story of just how much it costs to remove a doll shoe from a three-year-old's nose. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Okay, let's start this week with the brand new numbers on national health spending from 2018 from the federal government's Office of the Medicare Actuary. My fairly cursory reading shows kind of a mixed picture. Health spending is up 4.6% to $3.6 trillion. Think about that for a minute. Wow. We spend $3.6 trillion on health care in 2018. And a big part of that increase is the price is stupid, which we will talk about in a minute. Uh, but the share of the economy that we spend on health care actually declined a little bit from 17.9% in 2017 to 17.7% in 2018. Still, we are nearing a fifth of the economy on health care. Uh, Kimberly, you just came from the briefing on this. What was uh, the big take home from that? Yeah, well, the biggest one that I think most people will you know relate to is that now for the first time in 2018, we spent more than... $11,000 per person on average uh, per year. And that's for, you know, anything from the type of care you receive to the medical goods and services, the price of your health insurance, and all those different factors. Um, so as you say, the price continues to go up and uh, doesn't look like that's going to be slowing down. I mean, this is slower than it was, I mean, in the in the sort of early, or I guess the late part of the last decade, the 2000 sort of Five to ten, I mean, it was going up, and I think there were a couple of years it was double digits. So you know, four point six, four point seven percent doesn't seem like that much, but is it so much money that we're just numb to it now? It's still higher than the rate of inflation. It's still higher than the raises if people are even getting raises that they're getting at work. And while, as you note, the share of GDP dropped slightly, it's still almost eighteen percent, almost a fifth. To your point, so. I think that people that watch this for a living and all of us have looked at these numbers and say, oh, you know, it's not as bad as it has been, but it's still fairly extraordinary. And again, I think kind of bleeds into the narrative where a lot of the health discussions going on what are we paying for, how much are we paying for it, and what are we getting for it? And there are also two conversations, uh, picking up on what Mary Agnes just said. I mean, we have two national conversations about cost. It's what are we as a country spending? What is it doing to our economy? And as Julie said, it's a mixed picture. If you're an economist and you see that slight dip in, related to GDP, you're a little tiny bit relieved. You're not thrilled, but you know, it's good to see it moving in that direction rather than the other direction. But if you're a normal human being who has to pay deductibles and co-pays and higher premiums and insurance and you know everything, drugstores, you're not happy. So those are two. We have the national macroeconomic. I'm the daughter of an economist. I can pronounce that. Um, you know, the conversation about the national economy and healthcare costs, and then you have what's going on and driving the kitchen table conversation and driving our political debate and driving a lot of anxiety and difficulties for families. And this doesn't really change that. 
and and it's kind of worth mentioning that you know you see the Medicare for all debate. It wouldn't move the entire. It wouldn't change the bottom line number, but the share that's public versus the share that's private would be a really big deal, right? Yeah, I mean, for sure. A lot of people are more concerned not about, you know, what health care costs in general, but what it's going to cost them, you know, and uh, health care providers aren't necessarily concerned about who will be paying just as long as it will be paid. And so a lot of that has, is going to be about the shifting and how we're going to move forward and, you know, what it means for people who we do know are very much concerned about how much they're spending on prescription drugs, their surprise medical bills, and um, the cost of their health insurance that just keeps going up. And they're more uninsured. I mean, that was this, what I was... This, this yeah. report is mostly about cost, but if you do look in there, there's another million people uninsured. I believe that's two years in a row, according to this survey, that a million each. Uh, there's also census figures and other things to look at, but I believe this is the second consecutive year in this report that found a million increase. Um, and and so, as they point out, one of the reasons it didn't go up more is because people who don't have insurance don't consume as much health care. Right, but that is despite a strong economy and a strong job market and, you know, the ACA. And uh, there are complicated reasons for why. It's a whole other podcast. And we've had that discussion. There are many reasons for why the uninsurance rate is. We will come back to that again. Um, but it is important when you talk about the economics that, that you're also paying attention to a deteriorating coverage situation. And, and and one of the things just before we leave this that they also did say is that it wasn't that there was that usage of health services went up more slowly in large part because people who don't have insurance and don't it's, use and them. one reason they don't have insurance right. is because it costs so much right I mean, it's, there are many but, reasons but, but it's right. complicated but yeah. the prices do continue to go up yep. and that's one of the things that that we do keep coming back to I mean and so we're we have you know this is this is a nonpartisan group but it is a Republican administration and they are you know saying that it it really is the prices that we pay and not how much healthcare we consume that's driving this. And one of the factors contributing to those prices, specifically the price of health insurance, the report says, is the health insurance tax, which there is a big push right now to have lifted in 2020. It's set to go into effect again. Um, and it appears to have had an impact on the private health insurance market, not just you know the plans you're getting through work or through the individual market, but on Medicare Advantage, too. And we should remind people that this is a tax that, that was in the Affordable Care Act that was one one of the many taxes intended to pay for it. Remember, the whole idea was the ACA would be paid fully, for, fully paid for, fully paid for. And this this ta- this particular tax, which is on health, most health insurers, although passed through to then employers and and uh, policyholders, uh, has been on again, off again, on again, off again. So at the moment, in 2018, it was on. In 2019, the year we're in now, it's off. But it will come back in 2020 unless Congress delays it. So have I have I explained this right? Sort of like the hokey pokey. You know, I can't keep track. I have to look them up all the time. Which one's been, which one's put off for two right. years? There's a bunch of pay fors, none of which went into effect of these taxes in a consistent way as they were originally designed to do. I don't think any of them went into effect as they Except were. the Medicare, the higher Medicare uh, income. The, right. Yeah, that was still there. The which which right. Julie did a whole story, if I may say, on Kaiser Health News. You can read all about it. So. <laughs> yes, I did a story about all the all the, the, the disappearing pay-fors from the ACA that, that sort of one by one, they've either right. been repealed or delayed or somehow put on hold. Perpetually delayed a Perpet- year at a time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to Congress. Speaking of Congress, it is officially December, and Congress still doesn't seem to be moving very fast on the annual spending bills that fund the government, including much of the Department of Health and Human Services. The latest kick the can down the road bill expires December 20th, which is less than two weeks away. 
are we looking at a year-end bill, or are we looking at them to kick the can into 2020? I think the can will get kicked into 2020. The key is how far and how hard, because if you're, they're talking about maybe February or March, sort of a short-term extension, but we may be in the middle of an, of an impeachment trial in the Senate at that point, which may not be the highest high mark for you know bipartisanship. So. It is in everyone's best interest to move it forward to the discussion we've just had. There's the, this, there are provisions to try to lift, keep, keep a, mand, a moratorium rather on these taxes uh, for the medical devices, for the health insurance tax. There's a push now to get rid of the Cadillac tax on a permanent basis. I believe the House passed that. The Senate has not. We should explain what the Cadillac right. tax is. 40, for the six people who don't know. Gotcha. 40% excise tax on the highest cost health insurance plans. It's been fought ever since it was created. It's been successfully pushed back. It's Maybe, never gone into effect. Never gone into effect. So perhaps we will get a permanent repeal. And we were just talking this morning, there's now a push to get a surprise medical bill fix into this package. Because for people that don't spend their time watching Congress like we do, when a train is leaving the station, you got to hitch a ride. And this, uh, unless they want to shut the government down, there doesn't seem to be evidence of that. This seems like a moving piece of legislation. The key is how long. And it's really unpredictable. I mean, we have seen these deadlines come with the Trump administration and, you know, immigration issues, the wall, all sorts of things. You know, you cannot predict how it's going to go when you throw impeachment into the mix. You know, it could be a two-month uh, continuing resolution, also known as can-kicking. Um, it can be a year long. There's some talk of a year long. I don't think that's the most likely scenario, but, you know, it is it is something that you're hearing some murmuring about. It could be, you know, 30 days at a time for months. Um which is not unique to the Trump administration. We've had CRs many times in the past, although it's they've been particularly erratic in the, in the last two years or so. A year long would get you through the election. Yeah. However, but no, you but get, no, you no, no, get but any... You can't do a year. You can only go through October 1st. Yes. Oh, you can only go through fiscal year. The fiscal okay. year. Yeah. Thank you. But yeah. you gotcha. could get very close, and then you could do another CR, and right? I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. But also, it, it, it deprives you of a chance to get some things. I mean, surprise bills, which is was sort of, quote, unquote, the easy thing to do, didn't get done. It is not dead. It is impaired, seriously impaired. But we did see a push um, from the White House this it's week. It's on a slow boat. Yeah, but a senior administration official told um, one of our reporters, Sarah Carlin-Smith, that you know they were clearly, oh, they're still working on it. And those were carefully designed remarks to make sure that there's that the administration does see some faint signs of life and they would like to see it go forward. And I saw something, and it may have been from Sarah, that, that said that um, the administration would be willing to accept the, the arbitration that's been – what's been slowing this the down is, right, yeah. is a fight between – are they going to set a price that uh, that out-of-network providers would be paid or are they going to let those out-of-network providers, you know, go to arbitration and negotiate a price and it, it you know, for the – it's neither here nor there for the uh, for the patient, but it's a huge amount of money for the providers, which right. is why they're fighting over it. Right, and whether it's a backstop and how is it constructed, but yeah, I mean, it's not dead, dead, dead. It isn't dead. It's it it's like none of us expected to pass today, but we're also. You know, you can define 2019 really loosely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Congress has done that before. You know, didn't 2018 stop in around March of last year? Well, we should uh, we should remember though that it, it was a Dece- in December of 2018 that Trump decided, yeah, not to sign the one of the the continuing resolutions, and they shut the government down That's for right. what was it, less, 35 days? Yes, yeah, that was less wow. than a year ago. Yeah. Yes. So it's it's still and and last before we leave this drug prices are they going to maybe hitch a ride on this on this year end bill that might come into next year I don't think they can do a major drug 
bill in the next month. I, you know, I, I do think there are some bipartisan efforts in the Senate, and I think people would. I think people. It's it's still a potential win win in some shape or form between now and the election because Republicans and Democrats both want it addressed, both but the politicians and the public. So could you see something in, in the next ten days? I think we'd all fall over in shock. But you know, could you see something in the next six months? Maybe. Yeah, and for the legislation over in the House, they're still waiting on a final congressional budget office score before Which means they're they negotiating what's in it, right? It's, right, <laughs> right, still going exactly. Back. That I mean, I could, st- I could still see them voting on it in the House just to signal, hey, right. voters, if you put a Democrat in the White House in 2020, we are serious about having Medicare negotiate drug prices. So I could see them doing it for that reason, um, but. It's. I mean, there. This is one of the. I think it, um, it's, it's. It's harder than medical billing. They could um, also decide I mean, to do just, it. Yeah. They could also yeah. decide to do it later when impeachment isn't taking up so much attention, and, and you could get that through the House. It just. Yeah, they um, could do it in twenty twenty. And a reminder that the Senate. There's a bunch of bills waiting to come to the Senate floor, and yet the Senate has basically done no legislation this fall. They've. They've. Judges. They've done judges. They've been approving judges, and there have been all. There's been literally almost no legislation going through the Senate. So I think. I'm not even sure if they've named any post offices. Yeah, I haven't seen anything. I think they've been in executive session where they just do, I mean, they've done other, they've done judges and other appointees, but I haven't seen, you know, practically any bills going through the Senate. And nobody's paying a lot of attention to that, but it's odd. So let us talk briefly this week about campaign 2020. We say goodbye to Senator Kamala Harris, at least as a presidential candidate. She tried unsuccessfully to thread that needle between Medicare for all and keeping a role for private insurance. Meanwhile, our podcast colleague, Margot Sanger-Katz, has a really interesting story out this week about how a public option, which is the moderate proposal to expand coverage, might actually be pretty disruptive. Are the Bidens and the Buddha judges of the world downplaying what a public option might mean for the healthcare system. I mean, the devil's always in the details, right? How is it designed? What is the price? What are the size of the networks? Um, could people leave their employer-sponsored plan and get in? Could employers contribute money uh, to uh, whether it's run by the private sector or it's run by the government? And would their employees, would they shift from employer insurance into it? I mean, if it's if it turns out to be an ex, an option that's fairly comparable to other insurance plans, it may not be the alternative or the savior, if you will, that some people think it would be. Yeah, and I've talked to the Judge campaign about this at length because he keeps reiterating that people on the campaign trail are coming forward to him about Medicare for all, saying their biggest concern is that they'll lose, you know, choice, that they'll lose the private plan that they have. And you know, my my questions have sort of been, well, if an employer chooses to drop the private health insurance plan in favor of sending people to, you know, the public option, then they would lose the plans right. that they have. But they tell me that it would that the same rules would essentially remain in place in which if you have a certain size business, you have to provide health insurance. So they think that'll mitigate some of that. But obviously, a lot of people are employed by smaller businesses. Um, some private insurers might choose not to sell in certain markets anymore um, because they might just go ahead and let you know the public option go ahead and take that over. Um, and it, it also will depend on how the you know public option is designed. A lot of what we've seen from states hasn't really been what the Democratic presidential candidates are talking about. What they've done is instead allow private insurers to step in and pay providers less. That's not really what the candidates have envisioned, but it could be where they end up landing. I feel like one of the things that I took away from the story, and there was a lot in it, is that it was really good. It, yeah, it was really good. It was really good. Um, uh, and I look forward to having Margot talk about it herself. But what, one of the things I took away was that if the 
uh, public option works really well, it will be really disruptive because a lot of people will join it. And if it doesn't work really well, it will not be very disruptive, but it will not work very well. I mean, and we saw that to some extent with the Affordable Care Act itself. There was this anticipation in a lot of, you know, oh, my God, employers are going to drop, you know, insurance. The smaller employers are going to drop insurance and send everybody to the exchanges. Of course, the exchanges, when they launched, didn't work very well. So a lot of employers that could have, I mean, you know, it's only larger employers that have to offer coverage. A lot of the smaller employers didn't do it because they didn't want their people to go to a, an exchange that basically wasn't working and buy insurance that basically wasn't that generous. So it would it it was one of those places where the and that this is one of the big reasons I think for the the misestimate by the Congressional Budget Office that said that there would be like 30 million people in the exchanges and instead there's like 11 million people in the exchanges because not that many people wanted to go there. So it's this trade-off. It's like you're if you're only going to be disruptive if it actually works. And I think the Washington state experience has been really illustrative that they they do have a public option that they've passed I, I'm not sure if it starts in 2020 or 2021, but it but it really got watered down through the legislative process. And that is a liberal state. It's a very pro-ACA state. Uh, you know, Governor Inslee was running for president as the environmental candidate, but actually he has a really big health record, and they got a lot of things through, and it was it's still very watered down, and how much effect it has on prices is uh, costs, it's, rather. It's is, interesting, is, though. It's really um, a murky question. Because one of the big fights about Medicare for All is, are you going to pay providers at Medicare rates? And the providers all freak out and say, we'll go broke. And in Washington State, where they're doing this, they're going to pay providers at, what is it, 160% of Medicare rates, which sounds really high until you realize that a lot of Private insurers, three hundred percent, two hundred percent, exactly. And in North Carolina, where they tried to just, where the state treasurer tried to get the just the public sector covered, you know, teachers, cops, at something pegged to Medicare. I think he went all the way up to two hundred percent of Medicare or close to it, and still couldn't get that through for just the public employees. So no, providers do not like Medicare rates, or they they like Medicare rates for part of their practice, but they don't want that to be the norm. They like Medicare rates better than Medicaid rates. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they could go through about doing a public option in a lot of different ways. And I think one of the best things to look at is the um, hearing that's going to be happening next Tuesday on universal health care um, in the Energy and Commerce's Health Subcommittee, where they, I think it's six different bills that deal in some way with the public option. It's pretty much everything that's been introduced. Yeah. So, I mean, it could mean being able to buy into Medicare if you're over the age of 50. It could mean everyone gets to buy into a Medicare-like plan. It could mean buying into Medicaid. So there are a lot of different ways they could go about doing a public option. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't do this hearing earlier. Everybody's been so excited about the Medicare for All hearings. It's like, these are the things that are most likely to eventually happen. Um, and and so, yeah, I think that I think that hearing is going to be interesting. Well, in the here and now, there is some turmoil, shall we say, in the Trump administration. Joanne, your team broke this story last week about discord between Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar and Medicare and Medicaid Chief Seema Verma. What is going on with these two? They're not getting along very well. Um, there seems to be really intense disputes over who should report to who and who has authority over what. It, it, is, it seems to be, uh, you know, quite bitter. Um, it, it, there have been serious disputes that have slowed down the administration's priorities on just about everything in, significant, including uh, an ACA replacement plan that uh, Seema Verma designed and Alex Azar said would actually strengthen the ACA. Um, and it's interesting because after this story broke, um, you hear a lot of, you saw, I saw a lot of stuff on Twitter saying, oh yeah, we've all been talking. We've all known that, 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 you know, well, I don't know that we all knew how 
I don't necessarily want to, I, I don't personally want to characterize their relationship as dysfunctional since I'm not in the room with them, but from the outside, it doesn't look so good. And we should point out that, I mean, Verma came in sort of at the Under behest price. of, uh, no, no, but also at the behest of Vice President Pence. For Who whom she had she, a meeting with, was it yesterday or two days ago? Yeah, think, was this, well, this week. week. Yeah. I think it was two days ago. But yeah. that, that, you know, sort of. A she, public meeting on the schedule for the first time in three years, as far as we could tell, by looking at his public schedule. And they didn't say anything in public about what they discussed. But but that meeting certainly looked like a, a show, you know, that, that she has strong backing from Pence. I guess that's that, she that was be... his uh she was the architect of, when he was the governor of Indiana and she was a Medicaid consultant based there. She had she, she helped shape his uh his Medicaid Reform Act. The other hand, you know, Azar is also has been living in Indiana for about a decade as you know, he was at Eli Lilly, he also knows Pence. He and um Seema Verma moved in overlapping social circles. Their kids go to the same school, or at least one of their one of each's kids go to the same school. Um and you know, it is sort of a small world in Indiana healthcare. Um, um, so the cross loyalties and cross, uh, but we also know there's tension between Azar and some of the people in the White House because we've also report we and others have reported on that. So there seems to be, I think they need group therapy. Yeah, I know, but you know, and obviously, you know, in Washington, people like to sort of gossip about who's fighting with who and who's you know trying to get the upper hand and who. But this really does affect. The health agenda, right? Right. I mean, it, it does affect the health agenda at a time when President Trump has been trying to really shape himself as a health care candidate, as the health care president. I mean, the White House calls him that. And he, he's not defined if we he's trying to define it in some public health terms. And there's some things he's doing on opioids and kidneys and HIV that do, in fact, have, have bipartisan support. And they're trying to get that narrative out. At the same time, there are these you know, the, the, they didn't fulfill their promise. I mean, it was, a, it was a defining principle for Trump. I'm going to get rid of the ACA. And they failed. And um, the other problems persist. And drug prices are not brought down. And surprise bills are not solved. And insurance, uninsurance is going up. And there are a lot of problems. I was that, saying, and many of their regulations have been held up they're or on struck the court, down. But, but in course. fairness, that's, gonna keep, that's just the way it is now. And it's not just in health care. And if a Democrat gets in the White House in 2020... The Republicans are going to take everything to court, and we it happened. All, right. It happened to Obama. It happened to, I mean, yeah. We, what, how many times is the ACA in the Supreme Court, and or, or components of it? So that's just sort of the way policy and politics are fought out now. So um, the other thing is that it's a really peculiar situation for people who aren't aware of the intricacies of HHS. I mean, Azar is the cabinet secretary, but the CMS administration is a really, really big job. Medicare, Medicaid, and CHIP, which includes CHIP, and the ACA. It is, it is huge. It is a big budget, and it has um, a lot of influence over ordinary people's lives and the regulatory system and everything else. So there, there has been tension in the past before because of this sort of weird structure. Um, but it hasn't. I'm not, in the recent past, it hasn't been like this. That has come out in public. Yeah. Well, this, as I said, came as a little, I mean, not a shock to me, but a little bit of a surprise because, as you say, it's sort of the, the Indiana health people, you know, you would think that they would be sort of hanging together and apparently not so much. Uh, so elsewhere in the Department of Health and Human Services, the Food and Drug Administration may be getting a new leader soon to replace Scott Gottlieb, who stepped down back in April. The Senate Health Committee approved the nomination of Stephen Hahn, a radiation oncologist and top medical executive at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. 
Han's nomination itself is pretty non-controversial. I think everybody pretty much agrees he's well qualified to run the agency. But as frequently happens with these nominations, usually with the CMS nomination, lawmakers like to use him as leverage for policy fights, in this case, the fight about banning vape flavor. So might Congress be able to leverage this nomination to, to get what it wants on vaping? Or you think they're just going to sort of suck it up and approve him? I think they could talk a lot about it. They can make a big push for it. Patty Murray, who was the ranking member on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, which is the one that approved the nomination, where he did get some Democratic support. She did not vote for him based on this reason. And I think Democrats will continue to use it as a talking point, but it's really all about the votes. And so if the votes are there to confirm him and if uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell wants to get it on the floor, they can do so. But I think the vaping thing, and you do have Mitt Romney was also critical of Dr. Hahn because he... We uh, should say he refused to, he just wouldn't commit himself. And that was, I would think, not most, inappropriate as a nominee. It's not know. his decision. Right. But didn't he said, I'm going to pay attention to science and data? He did the right answer, right? He's also shocked, like everybody else is, that what more than a quarter percent of high schoolers have done vaping, if I've got my stats right. So I think he couldn't commit. Most most nominees don't commit. But I think that they will probably move forward on the nomination timing. I'm not sure about. I think Senator Alexander, who runs the Help Committee, wants it before the end of the year. And I think there is a chance that they actually, I mean, they're, they're not doing a lot, but I do think there's a chance they do on before the end of the right. year. I mean, there are Democrats who voted against them in committee, but you can tell the difference when they're really after somebody versus when they're making points for either policy points, and vaping is a policy point, and or political points. They're not really, you know, even people who are criticizing him. We've seen full-out campaigns against people, and that's not what's going on here. They're they want to air their concerns. They want about vaping in particular they, and the flavors. They want to use this opportunity to, to message and pressure on a public health concern that's actually bipartisan. Um, but if they really wanted to, to derail this nomination, which is hard for them to do under the current rules, it would be a lot more vituperative right now than it is. It's pretty courteously critical. Yeah. <laughs> Like I say, we we have seen this before. And he's a cancer yes. researcher. I mean, he's not going right. to be like a pro-lung cancer guy. Yeah. I don't think he's going to be like vaping, you know, yes or something. That's not going to be happening. Yeah. <laughs> that is the news for this week. Now we will play our Bill of the Month interview, and then we will come back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Marky and Haraluk, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month. He's in our Rocky Mountain Bureau in Denver. Welcome, Marky and. Thanks, Julie. Good to be here. So this month we have a whole family to talk about. Who are they and what happened? Yeah, it's the Bransons of Las Vegas who wrote to us about their daughter, Lucy, who is a real cute three-year-old. And she, uh, for some reason, decided to stick a pair of tiny pink plastic doll shoes up her nose, uh, one in each nostril. As children will do. Uh, Here's how her parents described this. Lucy comes up the stairs and I hear... And I was like, what is going on? And Michael said, why are you coughing? Well, I kind of pulled her back and kind of lifted her head up and put her on our bed. And that's when I could see something up her nose. And so I went up with my little tweezers and I get one little pink shoe out. It's maybe about the size of a Q-tip head. But that only worked for one shoe. Here's how Lucy herself, now four, described what happened next. The other one was stuck in my nose, and I couldn't, and my mom couldn't get it out. So, Marky and Lucy now has a doll shoe stuck in her nose. What did the family do? 
Yeah, well, the Bransons were off to a show that evening, so they were uh, eager to get this uh, taken care of rather quickly. Uh, but they had a high deductible health plan, so they knew that they'd be paying for most of this out of their pocket. Um, and they headed to urgent care where they were hoping it would be a you know a quick and inexpensive fix. Uh, but the doctors at the urgent care didn't have uh, a pair of tweezers that were long enough to remove the shoe, so they sent them to the hospital emergency room. And there the ER doctor was uh, able to pull the shoe right out just in a matter of seconds. Easy, yes, but also expensive, right? Yeah, about $3,000 worth, uh, so a, a bill of seventeen thirty-two from the hospital and another almost 1000 for the doctor's fee. Wow, and how much did they end up having to pay of that bill? Well, the Brinsons were smart. Uh, Lucy's mom, Katie, uh, called the doctor's office and was able to negotiate that doctor's bill in half right away. Uh, But the hospital wouldn't budge on the 1732 bill that uh, they had sent them. And the hospital rather insultingly basically told them that they should have gone to urgent care, which, of course, they did. But even with a high deductible plan and knowing they'd have to pay, this seems excessive for a procedure that took, what, five seconds? Yeah, I mean, emergency room care is expensive. We know that. It's it's the most expensive place to get it treated in a hospital. Um, but even this bill was uh, sort of out of line with what hospitals in Nevada were charging for similar services. Uh, we asked the medical billing review firm WellRhythms to compare um, what the Bransons were charged with what other hospitals were being paid for similar procedures. Um, and WellRhythms came up with, you know, a reasonable fee would have been about, you know, maybe $159 for the sort of ER facility charge, which is sort of the overhead for the emergency room visit, and then $222 for the procedure of actually removing the shoe from her nose. You know, that's uh, still uh, more than twice what uh, Medicare and Medicaid would pay. They'd pay about $100 for a similar procedure. And that's much more than, than the costs that Dignity Health, the hospital system, incurred for the, that kind of a procedure. According to the cost reports they submit to Medicare, the average cost for that kind of procedure comes to about $48. And it turns out this is not so uncommon that kids stick things up their nose or in their ears and that they have to be medically removed. Yeah, I think as uh, pretty much any parent of a three-year-old will attest, they're uh, they're prone to do things like that for, for some unknown reason. Um, yeah, but, you know, emergency room doctors and ENT specialists say, you know, most of the time, um, something stuck up the nose is not an emergency situation. And so um, even when um, something like that happens and a kid presents late at night in the emergency room, uh, oftentimes when they call the ENT specialist, they'll say, you know, it can wait till morning unless that kid is really uh, unhappy or, or feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> so the idea of high deductible insurance is that it gives consumers more quote unquote skin in the game and makes them want to shop for lower cost care. But the Bransons did that. Is there a take-home here other than if you have a high deductible insurance, you should be ready to pay your deductible? I mean, I guess the take-home is that you know, emergency room care is expensive, and it's, it's hard to shop around when you've got an emergency situation. Uh, the Bransons could have maybe you know, waited till the next morning and, and gone to see their pediatrician. Of course, this was a Friday afternoon, so they might have had to wait till Monday. Um, they did do the right thing and go to the urgent care first and uh, see if they could handle it, but of course were sent to the ER room. There are also some kind of do-it-at-home tricks for when a child has something stuck up their nose, one of which is called the mother's kiss, and it involves uh, the mom kind of 
putting her mouth over top of the child's mouth, creating a tight seal, uh, closing the one nostril that, uh, that, that's open, and then blowing hard into the, into the child's mouth. And oftentimes that'll dislodge whatever's stuck in the nose. But in the long run, you know, if you have to go to the emergency room and you've got a high deductible plan, you could be looking at a pretty hefty bill. Well, at least this one had a happy ending. Marky and Harlock, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Julie. And thanks, too, to Stephanie O'Neill, who reported the radio story for NPR and gathered the audio of the Branson family in Las Vegas. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week? Yeah, I picked a, a sad but um, revelatory story from the Los Angeles Times by Samya Karlamangla, and it's called Their Kids Died in, on the Psych Ward. They Were Far from Alone, a Times Investigation Found. And one of the most interesting things to come out of this is that there is no database, whether state or national, where you can look up to see whether psychiatric wards have, you know, deaths associated with them. And a lot of the deaths, sadly, are suicide related. Um, And so what the Los Angeles Times did is not only tell a lot of the individual stories about these circumstances, but they also put together a database um, where uh, Californians can search for uh, the different facilities and, and see, you know, what their track record is. Quite a story. Joanne. Um, there's a measles outbreak in Samoa, and um, I, I looked for the piece. There there have been a couple of interesting stories, and I looked for the one that really explained why their vaccination rates are so low. It's something like one out of three kids. Um, so I found a BBC article called How a Wrong Injection Helped Cause Samoa's Measles Epidemic. And basically, um, two nurses a year or two ago mixed some childhood vaccinations wrong. They, they Instead of using water, they used some expired tranquilizer or something, and two, two babies died. And that just, you, know, you can see why people got upset. But it played into all the vac- anti-vax fears, and um, it really had to do with two nurses who made a fatal mistake and who were actually convicted for manslaughter. But now they have measles, and they have something like 60 deaths, um, I think about 50 kids have died, and they're trying to really vaccinate. They, they've had to close public facilities, and uh, they've got a couple of thousand people sick, and it's really bad, and it's a, a good explainer of how they got there. And it's a big deal. Mac? So I picked a story from the Washington Post, how a fight over health care entangled Elizabeth Warren and reshaped the Democratic presidential race. It's by Annie Linsky, Jeff Stein, and Dan Balls, and I thought it was a fascinating look at the Warren campaign from the political sense, the policy sense of the first, the very strong embrace of Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan, then the decision that perhaps you could go to a transition period. That created some tension within the party. You had liberals who were very excited first about the full embrace of Medicare for All, then they didn't like the idea that perhaps it wouldn't be embraced immediately in her administration if she were elected. Uh, she had kind of frightened off moderates who might be worried about losing their health insurance like we talked about before. And so now she's sort of in a pickle, if you will, where not only moderates seem concerned about her original full embrace of it, uh, the full the, the left of the party is concerned that she may not be 
full, as fully engaged as she you know would be otherwise on Medicare for all. And the thing about it is, you know, she's the woman with a plan for everything, right? So there's a lot to her campaign, but this has become her campaign, and she's dropped in the polls. And again, it's early, right? It's still early in the presidential race, and who knows what's going to happen. But it just sort of talked about how this became center stage for her in the public eye and has hurt her presidential campaign so far. They call it the third rail of politics for a reason. Touch it and <laughs> yeah. you die. Yeah. There you go. All right. My story is from the New York Times. It's called How a Divided Left is Losing the Battle on Abortion by Elizabeth Diaz and Lisa Learer. And it points out that while abortion opponents are on the ascendance right now in many ways due to some serious organizing that they've done over the last couple of decades, disagreements on the left have actually helped facilitate the other side as well. Does that sound familiar to Democrats? Uh, as we've been saying here pretty much Every week, your access to reproductive health care is very much dependent on where you live. And these days, while abortion is still legal, it can be all but inaccessible if you're not either wealthy or live in the right state. Um, so that is our show for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Mary Agnes Carey. At Joanne Kinnon. At Leonard K.L. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.